I'm Chief Blackhawk, and I'm an alcoholic. You know, uh, I'm very grateful for being here to begin with. In fact, I'm very grateful to be anywhere when you're my age and still above ground. <laughs> By all means, I shouldn't be alive. I was sentenced to death about 15 years ago, I know, and I'm still here. And it was one of the reasons for uh, the fact that my health went bad. And uh, I had been married at that time and for 30 years in the program. And the doctor told my wife that uh, if she didn't divorce me, she would die. And you had to know her to understand why. She started to worry. We lost our home. We lost our business. And everything just seemed to fall apart. And I wasn't too well. And she started to worry. And she's, she's only actually only 98 pounds, and she went down to 78 pounds. And so the doctor told her, if you don't divorce this man and get separated from him, the worry's going to kill you. And so that's why uh, I've been divorced all these years. Although I talk to my wife very well uh, all the time, most every day. I call her this morning. She's approximately a thousand, no, a little over a thousand miles from here right now and way up in Michigan not from where I come from. And she'd always been my right-hand person wherever I spoke at every conference that I ever went to, you know, and my toughest critic. And every time I got done talking, she would tell me where I was wrong, you know. <laughs> and she would remind me what I should say. She said, don't forget now. She said, be sure and tell those people one of the greatest miracles <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous has ever performed particularly on you, was the fact that you love white people. <laughs> she told me that this morning, and I wanted to make sure I got it across, because when I get done talking, you may not think so. <laughs> when I came here, you know, I was scared. We was talking this morning, you know, I had no intentions of going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I never heard of it, though I might have heard of it somewhere down the line. But on October the 13th, 1958, when I got up and brushed myself off and went out and looked for my first couple of glasses of beer, and then I bought some I was going to take back to this little room I just acquired and wait till the working stiffs get off and I'm going to cocktail on and I'll be there till 2 o'clock in the morning, the height of my ambition at that particular day. Little was I to know that that night I was to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and scared stiff because, you see, I wasn't used to associating with white people. I wasn't brought up to like white people. My father would not allow you in our home. And that's pretty tough when you're growing up and going to school in a white, or <laughs> white community, you know, because I did have a lot of white friends. And I know when I first got married, I, uh, I got married to a white woman. They always kicked me out of the tribe. The hate, the bitter hatred that I was taught toward the white people carried right on. Until I started to drink. And once I started to drink, I could tolerate you people. <laughs> Got along with you just fine, you know. You have to be raised by, an, by an, like as an Indian to understand what you did to me for many years. As I was growing up, you'd always tell me and my family. You feed an Indian fire water and he goes nuts. 
And you know, I thought that when I get old enough, I am going to prove that they are wrong. First of all, I won't drink, but then when I got started drinking, I thought, well, I will prove to them that I can drink just like a white person, you know. And I tried so hard to do that. And, of course, I progressed in the disease of alcoholism, of which I knew nothing about, and I got in a lot of trouble, and I didn't seem to be able to drink like anybody else. I'm getting kicked out of here, getting kicked out of there and everywhere else. Nobody wants me. Get out of here, Indian. We don't need you. Even before I hit the door sometimes. And so I thought I failed. But you know, on October the 13th, 1958, when I had my last drink and I walked into my first AA meeting, I saw I drank like a lot of white people. <laughs> and I know that today. I screamed I was different when I first came here. There was no Native Americans around. There wasn't even any black people around in our groups. And I thought I was different. My sponsor got sick and tired of me doing that, you know, and I think he snuck me off to what they call an open participation meeting one time, and I thought I'd be safe. See, I didn't like to talk. In fact, I told my sponsor when I first got in the program, you are not going to get me up there to talk because you couldn't talk when I came in. It would not allow you to talk until you were qualified to talk. They went on the assumption this. You know a lot about drinking, but you don't know a darn thing about staying sober, so keep your mouth shut until you've been sober for a while. And that was quite all right with me. Because I wasn't about to tell nobody nothing. And so I went to this open participation meeting, and it's about the size people in that meeting. We went on a Saturday night. And the chairman called my name and called me up, and I found myself walking up there. And I talked for about ten minutes. When I got done, there happened to be an Indian in that audience, and I hadn't seen him, and he came up to me. We were born on the same day. We both served in the Air Force. I was in the United States Naval Air Force, and he was in the Canadian Air Force, though. He came from my same nation. He was Chippewa, and I'm Ottawa. He was adopted just like I was, and we both came into Alcoholics Anonymous on the same day. And you know, from that point on, I could never say I was different. And you know the odd part about it? I've never seen that Indian again. One of the many things that have happened to me since I've been in the program that I don't even wonder about anymore. Recently, some of you may have heard me over in Uniontown. I was over there, and I didn't think I was going to make it there. I had no money. My car broke down. But I had my things all packed in Thursday morning, and I was going to go down to Uniontown. Now, that's quite a little trip from Detroit, you know. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Seven o'clock in the morning, somebody knocks on my door, and I open the door, and here's a guy I sponsored ten years ago, smiling and happy. Didn't know whatever happened to him. He went to Chicago and sobered up in the halfway house out that way. And he was celebrating his 10th year anniversary. And he just pulled into Detroit and wanted to come over and see me right away and found out where I lived. Knocked on the doors at 7 o'clock in the morning. He says, oh, and by the way, I want to pay you that $500 you gave me. And I forgot all about it. And I'm mad. I got on the phone and I got the Greyhound bus. 
got a round-trip ticket, went down to the terminal. No sooner got in there, I was taking a set of my tapes, uh, eight sets of tapes down there to Uniontown because the people wanted them down there. And that's all I had. I, I, I couldn't do any more. And a, a black lady came up to me and she says, you're Chief Blackhawk, aren't you? I says, yes. And I thought she was in the program. See? And I asked her. She said, no. I said, do you know anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous? She said, no. Oh, she says, I've heard of it. Well, I says, how come you heard of me? She says, I'm a social worker. <laughs> she was going to Cleveland. I was going to Akron. She was on the bus ahead of me, and she bought a set. She talked me out of a set of tapes, and she canceled her trip on, on her uh, bus that she was going on and came with me, and we just had a ball going. I, I haven't been on a Greyhound bus in 30 years, and I'll tell you, I had a ball. All the way there and all the way back, I just enjoyed it thoroughly. You know, since I came to this program... I honestly believe that God will take care of me no matter whatever happens to me. He has this long as long as I do his work well. The big book tells me that. Stay close to God and do his work well. And I honestly believe that. Many, many things have happened to me, particularly when I was married. When I was married, I would spend my last dollar when I had bills to pay in the house. And maybe we didn't even have any phone, but I'd spend my dollar or give it away to some alcoholic knocking on the door and needed money. I made good money, but I was always broke. I was always giving it away. I was always doing something for somebody else, you know. And then just at the last minute, something would happen, and by gosh, money would come in from someplace. And I, my, I told my wife, I said, what do you worry about? I told you God would take care of us. She says, yes, but I wish he wouldn't wait to the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> One day at a time. The most beautiful thing I ever ran into was one day at a time. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, they came and got you. You could not walk in AA. And they interviewed you to find out if you were serious or not. And they told you a little bit about the program. You know, they said, you come to the program, do what you're told to do. We've got a program here one day at a time that you'll be happy, you'll be sober, you'll be a recovered alcoholic, you'll never drink again in your life. Be like loved and needed for the rest of your life. I don't know about you, but where I was coming from, that was one heck of a deal. Now, they said, if you don't want that, we will take you down to the corner bar and buy you a couple of double shots, and you can go on your way. And they just happened to have a meeting going on that night. Now, these were two nice gentlemen, white shirts and ties on, nice brand-new car that came to get me in this alcoholic house I was living in. And so I said, okay, I'll go to the meeting. As we went out the door... One of the fellows opened the back door, and I got kind of leery and scared. I had to make doggone sure there was a doorknob on inside. I've been in the kind of car with those two kind of guys before, you know. <laughs> and when they started headed north toward Pontiac, I thought, uh-oh, I know where they're taking me. There's a nut house up there, you know, in Pontiac, Michigan. But they drove me to a church. And as I walked into the church, everybody was greeting everybody at the door particularly a bald-headed, gray-haired old fellow. 
grabbed my hand, shook it like crazy, and he says, you know what? You're the biggest phony that ever walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I could have killed him right then and there. First resentment in AA. Carried it for three years. I couldn't get away from him. I never seen a six-year-old man have such a strong grip. I just couldn't get away from him. I went down, and he took me to an, into a room with as many people you got here. And then when I walked in the room, way from the back of the corner, some guy hollers out, Hey, Indian, I've been waiting for you for five years. And everybody, white eyes, turned at me, and I could have fell right through the floor. But I was glad to see him. He was a fellow I drank with. He was a fellow that was going to be assigned to me as a sponsor. And that's what we do in our group. You don't got a sponsor, you, leave, you have one when you leave our group. If you're brand new, we give you one. I believe in strong sponsorship. That's why I've stayed sober. That's why 3,500 people I've worked with stay sober. I lost 15. I went out to drink. I honestly believe you'll never drink again. Not only drink again, but you'll get happy. And you'll stay that way for the rest of your life. Providing you listen to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that says, Rarely have we seen a person fail. And don't say, Rarely have we seen a person slip or relapse. I don't read it that way. Maybe you got a different big book than I got. Rarely do we see a person fail. And God knows I know failure better than anybody else in the world before I got to this program. And I thought, This is too good to be true. And so he come running down, he was smiling, he had a suit on. God, I never saw the guy in a suit before. I drank ten years with him, I never saw him in a suit. And a white shirt on, and he looked so good. And this was an open lead type meeting that night, too. And I'll tell you, when I was growing up in AA, the minute you came in, you had a white shirt and a tie on at every lead meeting. And I didn't have no money when I came. My sponsor says, get it. I got it. I went down to Christian Enterprise. <laughs> you know, I got me a suit and a 25-cent shirt and nickel tie. And God, I looked like a king, you know. And I felt like a king. I don't know about the rest of you. When I get dressed up, I feel like a king. And I felt good. And the women looked good. You could tell they were women. They had dresses on, you know. And so as a result of it, you know, now that I'm sober, you know, I didn't much care for women when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and they told me to stay away from them anyway. Don't get me wrong, they didn't go to men. <laughs> but, but actually, all they were good for was to drink. If they had to drink and could buy me a drink, fine, I was friends with them. But now I get sober, you know, and I'm a young man. I was the youngest man in Detroit AA at the time. And the hormones begin to start to bounce off the wall again. And I look at the women, they begin to look a lot better, you know. And I had a hell of imagination, you know. <laughs> Where their skirts quit, my eyes kept going. <laughs> and my sponsor says, no, 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 no. Well, I think I'd been sober about 14 months. And my sponsor was going around with a woman in AA who'd been sober 10 years. And they were planning on getting married, and so they'd pick me up for meetings, and any time they'd take me any place, they'd say, we got some nice woman over here we want you to meet. 
And we go to dances. And then they said, we want you to meet a world. We're going to this dance so you can meet this. And I called my sponsor. I said, wait a minute. When I came to this program, you told me stay away from these women. I says, I'm not stupid. Every time we go to me now, you're trying to shove some woman off on me. He says, yeah, but you've been sober over a year now. I think he was getting a little bit worried about me, to be honest with you. <laughs> and little did he know, I had already started to go with the girl that I was to marry to come into Alcoholics Anonymous. She wasn't in the program yet. But I had sponsored her brother. And she's quite a bit younger than I. And you know, when you sponsor somebody, and I was young, and things were going on, I guess like they are today. I had kids call them relationships. When I was growing up, it's called shacking up. It's still the same damn thing as far as I'm concerned. You know. And she wanted to the first week. And don't think I didn't either. But how can I teach this woman about God and then take her to a motel for the weekend? And I just couldn't do it. I'd had enough AA down me by now. I began to regain some of the principles that I grew up with. And I began to believe there was some kind of a God. And I heard a speaker, the first woman speaker, Alcoholics Anonymous at Founders Day. I know most of you down here know her. I met her. She said, Peach of a gal. Her name was Gert Pahanna. And you know, in her talk and in her liege, she said something to me that has stuck with me till today. And I give it to my sponsored people every single day. Everything I do and everything I say and every way I act, is it for God or is it for me? And if it's for God, I do it. And if it's for me, I think about it. And you know, ask yourself that and I will guarantee you, you'll know when you're doing right or when you're doing wrong, just like I do. But sometimes I go ahead and do it anyway. The hell with it. <laughs> so I, I don't always live up to it, but sometimes, a lot of times, God steps in the way, you know. And I know before I got married, I got sober one time, and a drinking buddy of mine called me up, and I just bought a brand-new sport coat, and I hadn't been running around with normal people, all AA people. You know, I'll forget those people, he says, for crying out loud. Let's go over to Windsor, and we were going over to one of those show bars and stuff, you know, the women around and everything. I thought, gee, it's a pretty good idea. I said, I get all dressed up, ready to go, and ding a ling a ling a ling AA office calls me. The guy was 12-step call for me. I said, oh, no. So, as, as a result, I'll, I'll go on it, and then, then I'll go over to Windsor. So I ran down to get this guy, and he was sick, real sick. Took a bottle of whiskey in with me, and... In those days, that's what we done. We made 12-step calls. If they're that bad, you know, you better get something in them or they're going to die on you. And I called up the only hospital in Michigan or in Detroit area, Brighton Hospital, to get them in. We had to go through a bunch of paperwork and everything else, you know, and I'm looking up my clock and my buddy's waiting for me, you know. And so I get them out to Brighton Hospital. I finally get them checked in and look at my clock. It's 1130. It's too late to go anyplace, you know. <laughs> I go, oh, the hell with it. You know, my buddy bawled the hell out of me. But, you know, I don't care what I do. And once I committed myself to God, he don't let me do a lot of things. And I don't really want to do a lot of things. You know why? Because I'm still here. I'm still above ground. I'm still happy. I've had some major surgery. And in fact, I'm going in as soon as I leave here. 
a triple bypass. And I had a hell of a time in the hospital. Well, I really enjoyed it. Press came in. I had a lot of visitors, and everybody knew me around there, you know, and I'm having a real good time. And the night before I get operated on, uh, my surgeon comes in. And you have to talk about being touched by sobriety. The name of my sur surgeon was Dr. T.P. <laughs> <laughs> We got in a good discussion about alcoholism. I says, Doc, how do you sober up the alcoholic? And he went through 20 minutes of telling me how he drives them out and what he does for them and the nourishment that he gives them and everything else. And when he got done, he says, well, what do you do for him, Chief? I says, one simple thing, Doc. I just tell him, stay away from the first drink and you won't get drunk from alcohol. Is that all? I said, that's it. He was floored. He couldn't understand that. Never heard of it. That was only a few years ago. Today, there's a lot of people. We assume things because we're an Alcoholics Anonymous. We know all these things. When I came to the program, I had never heard about that. It was always if I had stopped at 12 double shots, I would have been okay. The cops would have never caught me if I just stopped a little bit sooner. Or if I hadn't got to whiskey, I'd have stayed on beer, I'd have been all right. In fact, one of my attempts, you know, to uh, get sober, I went to a psychiatrist. And this is what he told me. <laughs> he says, you're American Indian. I says, whoopee. <laughs> he says, Stay off the hard stuff and you'll be all right. Well, he should know what he's talking about. He's got a license and he makes a lot of money. Talks to a lot of people. I'll give it a shot. He said, a little beer once in a while is okay. Now I really like them. Paid him my 90 bucks and went away. Came back the next week. He gave me the same advice. Paid him another 90 bucks and went away. About the third week, I let it all go. Got drunk in hell, got in jail again. I, I came to the conclusion this guy's not doing me much good. And I had to look someplace else. You see, in those days, we didn't have treatment centers, or I don't think I'd have been sober yet. What a lovely way. I remember taking the guy to the first treatment center I went to. Nice bed, nice dining room, nice nurse to come after you, you know, and take care of you. And they had all kinds of beautiful things around, a golf course in the front, fishing in the back. And I thought to him, man, I sobered up the wrong way. I should have came this way. <laughs> No, I uh, I get on the treatment center business a little bit, but I, I, I say they do their job. They're there for a purpose. But thank God I never hit them. Because, you know, knowing me, I shot every angle I could possibly shoot before I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And I would have worked them over good if I saw they had that kind of a racket, I'll tell you. I'd have probably been in 20 of them. But thank God I was brought into Alcoholics Anonymous under old-time AA. Came in early enough to have the association with Bill Wilson for six years. Have the association with the founder of Detroit AA, Archer Trowbridge. In fact, he's in my upline sponsorship. My upline sponsorship goes to Dr. Bob, to Archie Trowbridge, to Howard Terwilliger, to Arnie O.J. Meek. And every one of these men stayed sober till the day they died. 
That's the kind of line of sponsorship I come from, and that's the kind of sponsorship that I build. That's the kind of sponsorship that I tell everybody I sponsor. You come from a good line of sponsorship, and you're going to stay sober. But most of all, you're going to get happy. I wouldn't be standing here tonight if I wasn't happy. And like I say, I've had to go through a lot of things in my sobriety. Particularly a divorce, you know, that I love my wife very well after 30 years. I was going to bring it down. I had it upstairs in my big book. A letter I got from my ex-wife for my birthday. And if you could see that letter, I don't think there's a person that's that guy that's divorced gets, gets that kind of letter from, from his ex-wife. You see, I've been married twice before, and they, the other wife was sure as hell wouldn't send me a letter like that. <laughs> He's glad to get rid of me. And I didn't think I was going to be married this time. I honestly didn't, although I wanted to. I was smart enough to realize if I failed at something a couple of more times, man, I, and I get married again, I just it's not going to work out, no matter how good it is. And so, like a good AA member, I went to my sponsor. Him and his wife were one sat me down for six hours and said I had a chance of getting married again and it might succeed. And it has. Even though we're divorced, we still like each other. We still have had a good time. She's still sober two years behind me. And to me, I'm deeply grateful for that, you know. And grateful to Alcoholics Anonymous and the teachers that I had. I don't know how they ever tolerated me. You know, when you put down the drink, that doesn't mean you change. And I didn't look nice, I didn't smell nice, and I didn't talk nice. You know, when I got in this program the second day, the first day, I, my sponsor gave me a piece of paper, and he says, here, write down on this uh, exactly what you think's wrong with you and what you hate the most. You know, a piece of paper about that big. You don't write too much because we're going to do it again tomorrow. I wrote down that piece of paper. I drink too much, I drink too often, I go to jail. That's all I could understand at that time. What's wrong? The next question was very simple to answer. What do you hate the most? White people. <laughs> Little did I know I was starting to write a fourth and fifth step, as we do in our group every single day. You see, it's a 24-hour program, and learning to live a philosophy of life will never be obtained on a part-time basis. It has to be repeated every single day. That's what we're talking about when we talk one day at a time. It's not hard. It's not uneasy for me to, to go to meetings every day. And I got over 40 years, but I figured I could cut a few down anyway, and I only go to two a day now. And I'm serious. I teach, I train AAs, do put on sponsors, I put on seminars, do a lot of things that are exciting. We take a lot of trips. I just came back from Washington, D.C., visit the president. You know, I walked in the White House just like I am right now. I was out in Kansas City one time in a nice, beautiful little meeting, you know, and, and a couple of young guys came in and started to make a joke of me dressed up like I was. You see, you white people don't know, as, a, as the very chief of the, Ameri of, of the Ottawa Chippewa Nation in Michigan, when I down this stuff, it's an honor to you. As you people do, you do, you do the same thing I do. If you go to a formal function, you, I know the guys, they put on tuxedos and ascot ties and everything else and dress up. 
So what's so strange about me dressing up here for to honor you for having me here? And I told these people, and I told the audiences, I says, no, that's what happened to me when I walked into your meeting. And these two young fellows are sitting right back there. Stand up, fellows. I says, no, I don't mean here. I mean, it's when I was in Kansas City. <laughs> Boy, I had 10 people turn around back there. <laughs> but you know, they stood up. And I told them one simple thing. At lead meetings, at open meetings, this is God's program. And you're working for God. We don't know who's sitting in our audience. They have all kinds of ideas of what an alcoholic is. And all they can believe in is what they see. Don't cheat God. Because if you're like any other alcoholic that I know that has committed himself to working the AA program, he is your employer. Don't cheat him. I've cheated too many employers. But I think I work probably twice as hard as anybody else for one simple fact. I, in my life, have never seen a good employer fire a good employee, and I want to be around another 24 hours. Just that simple. You know, sometimes I think, well, this is the end of the road. And, and right now, things are opening up for me about more than they ever have. And if you had told me that, I would, I would say, you're crazy. I says, I'm all done. I'm thinking about moving down to Akron and uh, getting away from Detroit for a while. But I've certainly enjoyed it. And I want to go back. Now, I kind of do things in reverse sometimes. I don't know how I'm going to start these leads out, you know. Uh, I am Chief Blackhawk. I'm already Chief of the Ottawa Chippewa Nation in the state of Michigan. Come out of Harbor Springs, Michigan. My great-grandfather is Chief Blackbird, one of the last heredity chiefs of the Ottawa's in the state of Michigan. Very famous in history and everything else, well-educated. In fact, we're the most educated tribe in the United States right now because we gave up our reservation rights and 95% of us have college degrees. Our sister nation, our sister tribe doesn't have that. They, they accepted the reservations. 95% of them don't get through high school. And they've got all kinds of problems. So back then, I think my great-grandfather was just smart as anything to have us raised just like white people. Had to pay taxes, had to do everything else. But we was allowed to mingle. We was allowed to go to their schools. <laughs> we was even allowed to drink. We had our own bar in our own town. And they couldn't stop us. Well, sad as it may be, it was only about five years ago we Ottawa's were just declared citizens of the United States. But I've had a lot of fun with it, and I'm growing up with it, you know. And coming into Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me in my life. I grew up, got well-educated, my folks got divorced, I got adopted, and then they got divorced again. By the time I'm in eighth grade, I had, I had four mothers and four fathers. And if you don't think that makes for a little mixed-up kid, you're crazy. But it was nice, you know, because this was in the time, this was in the time of the Depression, just coming out of the Depression. Things were tough. And children didn't get things. We didn't get things. You had to earn things and work for things when I was young. But not me. I knew how to play one against the other. And I had eight people that loved me and eight people that would buy me this and buy me that and chip it for this and chip it for that. Had heroes. 
I don't know. Kids might not have heroes today. I had heroes. My greatest hero in 1935 was John Dillinger. <laughs> I wanted to grow up to be just like him. And you know I did. On my way down through alcoholism, I joined a fam uh, criminal family in Detroit. And this was my job. I just come back out of World War II, very bitter. My dad said I had to go to work, of all things, or go back to college. So I went back to work as an insurance man for one simple reason. They make all the money. Insurance men are rich. They don't do nothing. All they do is drive around big cars and make a lot of money. That's the job for me. That's what I was during the day, and everybody thought so. You know, I'd walk in with my briefcase and the cocktail on and set it down, and here comes the insurance man, Mr. Mutual of Omaha. I had cards printed up as such, too, you know. I swear to God, I was scared somebody going to open that briefcase one time because there was nothing in it. <laughs> my real business came after midnight at night. Very good at setting up jobs, very good in the criminal world, very good in the rough world, and very good at cracking banks. And this is what I'd done. Made a lot of money real fast, real quick. A lot of women. But you walked a tight line, I'll tell you. Stepped on a few point, uh, toes to the point that I had to have a bodyguard 24 hours with me at all times. And... After this, for about six years, I got kind of tiring, and I got kind of scared, you know, and I, I had a chance to get out of the family, and I did. And thank God I did, you know. I said, there must be a better way to live than this. And now I'm drinking. Now I'm deep into alcohol, and I don't even know it. And so I got married. I thought, that's the answer. Found a girl I went to school with. Her father was a millionaire. And so we got married. We should have had a wonderful marriage. My father-in-law gave me everything. Gave me a home in Beverly Hills. Gave me a brand new one of his cars, you know. Of course, my mother-in-law didn't like me, my future mother-in-law. She came from out west. She's one of those real, real old, old, old people. I married the baby at the family, you know. And out west, even today, we're considered savages. And many times she used to tell me, my daughter is not going to marry a savage. I says, yes, she is. She <laughs> tell an alcoholic they can't do something and see what happens. Two weeks later, we were married. And like I say, we should have had a wonderful marriage. All the advantages two young people could have, well-educated young people. But the problem was I still drank. And I didn't know what I had. The ideal job, I was a sales manager for his business. My job was entertaining, take outcoming uh, manufacturers out to the country club, spend all the money you want. I used to spend maybe three, or $4,000 on a weekend. My father-in-law didn't mind it one bit. You see, he didn't like to play golf and he didn't like to drink. So that was my job. And if I'd have used it right, I'd have been sitting real, real pretty. But being the alcoholic was not knowing nothing about alcoholism, it got to me. Needless to say, the, the marriage ended up in divorce, but before it did, we had a little son. We called him Little Hawk. 
And because of my alcoholism, the state took my boy away from me. And for the first time in my life, I cried for three hours. And today I can remember those cop and that old biddy coming down and taking my child away from me. And I said, one day I'm going to get even with those damn white people if it takes me all of my life. And I'll never forget it. I tried going back to it. I joined the service again and I got my commission with the United States Naval Air Corps. Served in Korea. Didn't do too good. I didn't ruined a good war record and I came out after four years. I'd been four years in, the, in during World War II. Had a real clean record. Second titch in the service. It took me two weeks to get in trouble over drinking. And I didn't know it. And so I came out of the service very bitter. I'd gotten divorced. Lost my son, and then I found you lovely women. Yeah, you know, that's what I like about women in AA. For some unknown reason, you always pick on the alcoholic over and over and over again. And you're going to change us. And I ran across a cute little blonde that was going to do that to me. And she talked me into getting married within a month after I got out of the service. And I thought that was a beautiful idea mainly because she was working and I wasn't. <laughs> Needless to say, it didn't last too long. I didn't know about these blackout businesses, you know, but it lasted a very short period of time. And I was walking down the street one time, and I seen her, and I tapped her on the shoulder, and I said, Dee, when are you coming home? She looked at me, and I'll never forget the look on her face. She looked at me, and she says, Don't you know, Chief, we're divorced. <laughs> Try that on for size sometimes. And I didn't know it. But I knew one thing at that point. Alcohol had me. And I didn't much care. If I'm going to drink, I might as well be a good drunk. It wasn't too long. I had a few good fortunes in business and everything else. And all of a sudden, I end up on territory Skid Rows of Detroit. The typical Skid Row bum. Asking myself the question, what happened? What happened to this young man that was going to tear the world apart, maybe be the first American Indian president of the United States? I had a lot of ambition when I was young. And here I don't have a penny, and I'm standing on second in Michigan, just turned away from the Salvation Army, wouldn't even take me. What happened? The old alcoholic question, you know. Well, I was to have some good fortune, get off the avenue, but I got in trouble again. Thrown back in jail. Caught for drunk driving. A lot of people today get caught for drunk driving, you know. But when I got caught for the first time drunk driving, this is what they gave me. $280 fine, 20 days in jail, and off the road of Michigan never to drive again in your life. And I didn't much care. You know, I, so what? I was so used to breaking the law, that don't mean nothing. Served my time, got out of jail, didn't have no money. Had to find a place to live. Hit a guy over the white head and over the head, and for crying out loud, he only had forty bucks, but that was enough to get a room. And along came October thirteenth, nineteen fifty-eight, and I was to come into this program. I made the call after throwing a beer away. I remember throwing it away, and that's all I remember—a six-pack of beer. And the next thing I know, there's a lady on the phone hollering in my ear, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, are you having trouble with your drinking? I said, yes, I am. She says, do you want to quit and never drink again? I said, yes, I do.
She says, are you all right? I says, yes. Do you have a place to stay? I said, yes. And the next thing she said to me was amazing, the answer that I gave her. I, she says, will you be all right till 7.30 tonight? And we'll send two gentlemen down to talk to you. And this is 10 o'clock in the morning. And I said to this woman, I said, yes, I'll be all right because I'm going home. You people don't know how much that means. You tolerated me. You took me in. For 43 years, you've allowed this to be my home. All over the world. And I'm deeply grateful. I still thought about my son a lot. Last August, the courts released records. I went to circuit court. And they called me and they had found Little Hawk. For 50 years I've been looking. The only sad part about it was he was dead. He had died at 27 years of age. And the good news is he had a son who was only two months old, but he was adopted, so we had a little tough time finding him. But they finally found him, and she gave me the telephone number to call him up. And before I got home, he had called me, and we made an appointment to get together, and he lives in Erie, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I'll be in Erie, Pennsylvania in April. But I went down on August 8th for his birthday. We spent time playing golf. We had a hell of a good time. I, got, I found out I got, I'm a great-grandfather, you know. True alcoholic, no time to be fooling around with that plain old grandfather bit. I went to the great part, you know, right <laughs> off the bat. And now I know why most grandparents are so proud of their children, grandchildren. I cry every time I see them. They're so lovely. And they're so much a part of me. And my grandson looks almost identical to me. You know, and, and to me, that's the greatest thing I've ever had happen to me in the world. And I thought the miracles were done in my life. And yet they're just beginning. I've been excited. I've been maybe on that cloud nine for a long time. I remember years ago when I, I got in the cloud nine, some joker in the audience says, wait till you fall off of that cloud nine, chief. I got scared. I went to an old timer, 10 years in the program at that time. I said, Grant, when do you fall off this cloud nine? Everybody tells me I'm going to fall off of it. He says, Sonny boy, he says, they're going to have to go to somebody that's been sober longer than I have because I'm still on it. <laughs> and I can tell you people tonight, I'm still on it. I'm just tickled pink of the life that I've led and the opportunity to share my story with you. And if I can do it, you can do it. And I know when the time comes for me to die, I'll be happy. I'll walk out of this world a happy man. It may hurt, I don't know. But I'll walk out of this world a happy man. And when I come face to face with God, I can look at him just as I've looked at you today. And I can just say one thing to him. To the best of my ability, I tried. Well, you're a lovely audience. I've enjoyed your conference, and I hope to see you again. Thank you.